to another uh, delicious episode of Grimdark Tales podcast edition. Um, this, uh, in this episode, I'm joined once again by the lovely Jesse. Hello, Jesse. Hello. Um, Jesse has kindly uh, graced the podcast again so that we can discuss another topic. This one actually uh, was uh, suggested by Jesse. Um, sort of inspired by discussions we've been having in the Discord with uh, other people. And we thought this would be a really fun topic to explore because it it sort of will explore what we both find personally uh, exciting and enjoyable about the hobby. And it sort of ties into just even our ad- identity as players and list builders and army painters and all of that stuff. Um You'll have to forgive my voice. Uh, it's probably a little worn out because I've been talking a lot lately f- uh, for different podcasts. Uh, this is this will be the third I've recorded in two days, um, which is wonderful for me because uh, I love to give you guys as many of these as I can. But uh, obviously, my voice probably sounds a little worn out, and uh, I don't mind that. I'm not. Uh, I don't feel tired, but I probably sound tired. So well, we always (laughs) seem to talk for like five hours before we finally hit the record button. Yeah, before we even start. Yeah, (laughs) Um, and that's fine. I love all of it. I could talk hobby forever. Um, I think I keep telling you, one of these days we'll have to do the twenty-four hour podcast. Yep, it's gonna it's gonna be a thing. We're gonna make it happen. And I think if anyone can do it, it's probably people like us. Um, who can just keep talking about this stuff for as long as we are awake. Um, so anyway, um, the topic that we, that we have come here today to discuss is the idea of what, uh, what is the narrative within this game? Now that term can mean different things. And I think part of that is what we will be exploring, but, Obviously, in the most uh, basic sense, narrative is one of the three game types available to us in 8th edition, where the rules sort of allow us to cater our games as if we're playing sort of a story, um, and the narrative rules allow us to have a little bit more of a flexible game mode where you know, we're not crunching numbers down to like very, very granular levels to try to perfectly balance our armies. And we're more trying to build games that tell a specific story. And uh, Games Workshop has given us great tools to be able to do that better. And and their match play games are very different um, in their structure in that they're more about like balanced, mirrored sort of uh, isolated arcade type game style, but narrative feels like it can be part of a larger story or like stories could be written about that experience. Um, but regardless that, that is still only one sort of definition of what is narrative because when people talk about the narrative, what they're often talking about is does your army have its own story? Does it fit into the lore and the narrative of the larger 40 K universe and um, and do you bother with that aspect of it? Or are you just putting a bunch of models that you like together and not bothering to 
justify it or explain it, which people don't have to do. Um, but for some people, that is a huge part of what is enjoyable about this hobby is, you know, once you've built your models and painted them um, and you've made your list, part of what that all is being glued together by is that you've created this story for them. Um, a lot of times that can express itself in, you know, you naming your own characters, you know, instead of just saying, I have a captain in Gravis armor, you can say, I have this guy who I've named Captain Maximus Decimus in he is a space marine captain of my own chapter wearing Gravis armor. And that level of uh, detail that you put into it, that is your own narrative experience. And that can really fuel the hobby for a lot of people, uh, myself included. And I think you as well, Jesse. Right. Um, yeah. So um, we can just get into it. And Jesse, if you okay. want to start off uh, with just sort of maybe some basic ideas you had about this as you, as you know, you started talking about this sort of brainstorming to yourself. And then as you brought it to me as an idea, um, maybe some of the larger aspects of what the narrative is to you and how you express yourself through it or how you allow it to be expressed in your armies and games. Right. So, um, last time we talked, some of the feedback we got was that people really enjoyed some of the little, uh, you know, narrative things from from the ad mech stuff that we had talked about, and they were suggesting that maybe we get together and talk about other Forge worlds. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so, I've always considered myself a narrative player, but I have read like two books, and I don't read everything narratively in the codex in the rule book I have. Right. Um, so I just it kind of got me thinking like, OK, well, what what exactly is narrative? And, and for me, narrative is more just like storytelling in general, kind of mm -hmm. um, like I, I know for a long time, I think it was Games Workshop that you used to use the motto forge the narrative. Yeah. And so it was kind of like this this idea of like be creative with your army and like tell your own story. And that's I think that's kind of what the narrative side is to me. Um, now we were talking earlier before we started recording that narrative as a gameplay mode or set of rules is new to eighth edition. So games workshops always had a narrative, you know, backstory or whatever that, that explains the universe and gives the motivations for the various factions and mm -hmm. the relationships amongst each other. But then on the tabletop, the game was a different way. And that's where those terms, for, for any of you that are new to the hobby, and you hear veterans talk about the fluff and the crunch, mm -hmm. that there was like this separation of where the narrative was the fluff. It was just fluffy dressing that didn't matter in, right. in game terms. It was just, you know, the candy coating that you put on on your models. And then you had the crunch, which were the rules. And... Games Workshop has over time kind of tried to blend the two together better where mm -hmm. now the rules tend to kind of fit the narrative better. There's definitely more emphasis on on the rules. Seventh edition, the and maybe sometime we can do a separate podcast talking about formations versus the new specialist detachments. Mm -hmm. But yeah. yeah. Originally the formations 
I don't know Games Workshop's intent. I know that their management was definitely more selling models oriented, so there might have been like an, an ulterior motive to it. But in 7th edition and previous editions, you had one what they called force organization chart. So your army got built on X number of HQs, X number of troops, um, elites, fast attacks, so on. Every single faction had the exact same force org chart. Yep. And you all had the exact same minimums. So everybody had the same minimum HQ and troops. No mm -hmm. ifs, ands, or buts. And then when 7th came about, the Codex would also have this these formations. Yep. And the formations were more like they were – you could bring these – any combination of formations pretty much. Right. And that would also count as a battle-forged army in addition to the force organization chart. And the, the concept was that – these formations would now better reflect how these various factions operate in the narrative side of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but then there was a whole other side of free upgrades and ridiculous buffs and powers that just drove to sell models that, that were gross. But um, then 8th edition kind of had these different attachments, and that kind of made it interesting where you could still you know, structure your army based on how you think it would go or, or, or how it would work in, in the narrative. And, and some factions had more, I think, unique uh, sub-factions within them. Like uh, yeah. probably probably Dark Angels is an easy example. You know, they've got the different wings and, you yep. know, Raven, wings, Raven Wing is all like bikers and, you know, fast attack type stuff. And then the, the Death Wing is all the Terminator stuff. So you could now build an army that is exclusively just one of those versus – in previous editions, you had to pretty much just have all the wings right. come in if you wanted some of both of them because of the way the you had to have the troops' choices. Yeah, there was such an inherent um, limitation based on that force organization chart where it made it so you couldn't really specialize your armies that much. You had to sort of take this tax of of the core choice. Um, whereas now in 8th edition that's just an option that will allow you to have more command points to play with, um, which is entirely just a new feature of the game. Um, right. So, yeah, that's that's a huge shift, really, when they in introduce formations. Uh, for better or for worse, it was a massive sort of sea change in how you could structure your armies. And 8th edition, again, was a huge overhaul that sort of brought elements of, like, the basic uh, force organizations back. Um and then we're seeing sort of more unique things coming out of these specialist attachments, but they're still a different animal. Um, and again, we right. can talk about that more. That, that's almost kind of, I think, a whole different topic yeah. for maybe another time just because, I mean, it does tie into this, but it's it's pretty vast and there's a yeah. lot you can, there's a lot of meat to dig into for sure within that whole thing there. But um, so so, yeah, before. In seventh edition, the closest thing we had to like narrative rules was those formations, you know, mm -hmm. and they were just like an alternative on how you build your army. But you started kind of getting towards this um, blending of how stuff worked in the stories you might have been reading um, and how they actually look and work on the table tabletop. And I think it's great that they're kind of mixing those two together. They're they're getting much closer to that. Yeah. Um, but f narrative for me. Um, as a narrative player, I don't even necessarily play the narrative rule set. Mm -hmm. Now, I do like the narrative rule set. I do like that it's – I like to think that Games Workshop is kind of writing the game so that narrative is the default 
Yeah. And matched play is just a balance restriction type thing. Like if you right. think about like collectible card games, they always end up having like a, a, a list of cards that are banned because <laughs> yeah, they're just yeah. so broken or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's kind of that thing where it kind of tries tries to kind of put everything on a level playing field. So um, for me, narrative games is I like the game to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I like that to not just be I'm trying to curb stomp someone and we're just playing chess with glorified pieces. Yeah. Um, I like there to be some kind of story. And, and, and a lot of the games I've played, some of the best games I've played, I've gotten destroyed. Yep. But the game ended up having a story that took place that was really fun. And I also like to kind of blend a little bit of role playing in when oh, I, yeah. um, yeah. I tend to try to play my army to the narrative and, and it can vary, you know, it could be the, the narrative of the particular army that I've built and I've written that that's unique to my own army within the faction, or it mm-hmm. might be the narrative of, the faction as games workshop has kind of already laid out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be the narrative of the mission. Right. Um, and I, and the narrative play section of the, uh, big rule book has some really cool, um, cinematic and thematic type missions. You can play, they have some special rules they add. And the, the thing that I really like about it is if you study it, I, I feel like it gives you a good foundation for creating your own custom things with your opponent you know rules like some of the missions have you have well you always have an attacker and defender i believe in the um i think that's the way they they set it up in the narrative book yeah narrative section but sometimes the attacker will have like a special rule where whenever a unit gets destroyed you roll it on your next turn you roll a die and on a certain result you just bring that unit back on and it's to signify that they have like wave after wave of guys coming up Exactly. Um, So you do you still get these kind of unbalanced scenarios, but but depending on the mission you're doing, those can be a lot of fun. And yeah, uh, some of some of my favorite battle reports I've watched on YouTube are ones where there's a narrative to it. You know, um, we'll probably drop or all whenever I'm on, I'll probably drop these guys names a lot because they're the big guys I've been watching. But Winters, SEO, um, Morehammer and then. Um, Liam and Winters from both of those channels, their um, mutual effort business deployment zone. Yeah, their focus is on the narrative, you know, and it's it doesn't mean that there won't be times where there's like you know somewhat cheesy lists or whatever. Sure, or there won't be some competitive banter going on, but there's still a story to be had. There's the lists make sense because that's yep. the other thing about narrative for me too is I want the army I'm building to make make sense within a story it's not just uh like you know we've talked about this before it's not the riptide wing or some of the some of the stuff you see in eighth edition now with the 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 loyal 32 with their castellan (laughs) and the three smash captains like those individual units would never be in a battle like that you know that list doesn't yeah that list doesn't make what you're talking about i think is is your you want your list and the way that you play to conform to a an internal logic within the game world right and and um i think that when you see lists like the loyal 32 those 
have no qualms breaking that that logic because those players don't care about would you ever see that in like a a narrative you know like a black library book or something right um, well, even even the name that they come that, that they've that they've been coined right excuse me um you know the the loyal 32 or if you're taking the admec equivalent it's the rusty 17 you know and <laughs> yeah. then and then the fact that they're called smash captains because they just have a big hammer to yep. smash things um but it's a very satirical and, you know, and your, sort and your, of name your narrative for your list can be anything it just needs to be you know something like like uh one of the armies i just recently started building and i've kind of i always tend to kind of go back and forth in cycles you know oh i'm working on this project now i'm back to that project but yeah at the beginning of the year i started up um it may have even been around this around Christmas time. It was whenever the first Vigilus Defiant book came out. Yep. And they had the Tempestus Drop Force mm-hmm. specialist attachment in there. Um, so, a little bit of history for me is as I was in the army um, from 2001 to 2005, and mm-hmm. I was I was in an airborne unit, and so I get out. You know, many years later, I get into Warhammer. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I see Imperial Guard, these guys are stupid. Like, <laughs> why does anybody collect these guys? I'll never collect that fact. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I had been collecting Admech for a while, and and somehow I I don't know if it was a battle report or I was just browsing Game Workshop's site, but I saw the Scions and I was like, saw them with the Berets, and I was like, ooh, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really think anything of it. I was just focused on my army, and then. It was sometime in 8th edition that I started finding out more about the Scions and what they were. And it was like, oh, those those guys are paratroopers, essentially, or the, you know, futuristic technology equivalent. And it was right. like, you know, then then Vigilist Defiant came out and um, I didn't even know that the Valkyrie had the ability to do this till this detachment came out. And I started looking at these units and I go, wow, like these guys can load up in a Valkyrie and then they can jump out after it's moving. And I'm like, that's like the only unit transport in the game. I think that can even do that. So it was really cool because it was unique, Mm -hmm. but then it also had this narrative. So then I started thinking, well, I've never seen anybody uh, in eighth edition and at least in the channels I've looked at um, with the exception of Mr. Andy Byrne, um, (laughs) who's been running just, just scions. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, it's always like, you know, a couple of them with a larger guard thing. So I started thinking, well, would a nothing but scions army be viable, not in a competitive stance or sense, but it just, would it survive in the game? Um, right. there's definitely a cool narrative with it. And, um, even if you don't use that specialist attachment, all of the things that the scions, the rules that, that work with that whole idea of them, uh, deploying from a, from an aircraft mm-hmm. still work in the game. So, so even if the, the opponent I'm playing is like, I don't really want to use those, I can still do that. So then I started writing up this list and I started kind of drawing from my own experiences in the military and mm-hmm. the unit I was in the way we were organized, the way that we would fight, we would train, the way we were structured, and I started building my squads. Um, so they're they're not the most uh, probably competitive choice as far as uh, 
the most bang for your buck you can get in the game with the sure. way buffs and things work is to put all of a certain type of weapon in a squad. Right. So, yeah. You know, I I was building ten man squads of scions. They can take total of four special weapons when you do that. Mm-hmm. But rather than putting all four of those weapons um, on most of my squads, I do have the four plasmas, and those are the ones that jump out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I still feel like that still fits a narrative of what you would be doing in that role. You'd be sure. Yeah. You know, you'd be doing a behind enemy lines strike that is aggressive and violent. Um, but the other squads, there's, you know, two, there'll be like two volley guns and two grenade launchers or two volley guns and two melters. So it's maybe not the most efficient points wise, but it still fits my narrative of having, you know, a little bit of different roles that your squad can fulfill with the types of units they can go after. Um, and then the narrative I started writing for it. Uh, now this one, because I've got personal experiences, of course, the narrative for these guys is basically lifted right from, you know, the unit I was in, I was in, um, the 82nd airborne, mm-hmm. um, 3rd brigade, 3rd battalion. I was a medic for alpha company. Um, our brigade was called the Panthers. Mm-hmm. So of course, you know, t- drawing from the way games workshop did their, sort of naming convention for the scions within the book i named my unit the 82nd alphic panthers so mm-hmm. it, it had ties all those personal references into these guys some of my hq characters i'm naming after actual leaders that i served with just because they were in, inspiring to me and i still think of them yeah um so so that's one army that's built off of personal experiences and references and something that's very similar uh, my admech army is kind of just my own narrative that I've come up with, um, but it still hinges around a character that Games Workshop has built, which is Belisarius Call. Right. I, I love him as a model. I don't incredible model. His his narrative they've written is kind of uh, it could be better. It could be way better. I think I think it's just because he came out of nowhere. Yeah, and I, I it it felt like such an upheaval that it almost felt like uh it almost feels like lazy writing when you know right. they, it's like they're oh, not trying been around for ten thousand years but you haven't heard about him yeah, until no, now no and one's ever heard about him but he's so important he worked with the emperor side by side on the space marine original space marine project and now gulliman has uh i think it was even before gulliman got his mortal wound like he had yeah. tasked, he had tasked him with creating a better space marine, and he's been doing that for the last ten thousand years. But shh, nobody knows. Right. It's um, been so, so it's, hush, hush. it's a. It was a. Yeah. It was. It's like you said. It's. It's. It's lazy. It, yeah. it could have been better. Um, or if they had introduced him earlier in the Black Library narrative, so it wasn't this sudden burst on the scene. Right. Yeah, at it, least it, you knew of him. Maybe you didn't know about his secret project, but you knew of him. Exactly. It's um, like. Yeah, we, there are other characters too that they started as just a name or or just a model sketch. Like some of the uh, podcasts that uh, that they've done with Jess Goodwin. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think he was even saying with the Abaddon. Yeah, Abaddon was uh, originally he was just this like sketch that he drew up to just kind of set a uh, um, set the theme right for something, and then somebody was like, "Ooh, who's that?" You know, and then right. eventually it turned into this actual character and model and. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, look what that's become. It's it's right. 
it's incredible and it it took time for that to grow and and germinate but call was just thrust upon us and his impact is so massive that it feels like a uh, a lazy shoehorning of sorts and right that that's what makes him feel you know a bit a bit lackluster but i think if they had just taken their time with introducing him and integrating him he actually would be awesome because right. i'm fine with all the things he's like he means for the lore i just don't like right. that he feels like they had no plans to introduce this character and then suddenly he's everything but or it's like oh we had this really cool i'm uh, it's uh, yeah, like somebody drew something. Who knows where that originated from? Maybe right. it was a cool sketch when they were, because uh, once again, going back to like the the rain, the new model ranges that Jess Goodwin worked on. It sound they, he was saying sometimes it can take them four to five years before you see the models, and right. he kind of starts setting up, and cre- basically creating a whole universe before they even start with models. Yeah. So he starts with sketches, ideas. He thinks up, like, how do these people think? What motivates them? Mm-hmm. You know, all the... So he basically creates the whole universe, and I think that's part of what helps make the models and the subsequent codex and stuff that come out m- more real. Is, yeah. You know, so who knows? It could have it could have come from this really cool model, and then they're like, oh, well, we need a story for him. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. But he's, he's super eccentric, I like how he breaks the rules because mm-hmm. um, the narrative we've been given so far with the admech is that they pretty much have this one belief system. Right. Um, but in some of the Horus Heresy stuff, you find out that there was actually like a schism mm-hmm. where, and that's where the dark mech come from as they believe a little bit different thing. And the book Mechanicum, there's actually a couple characters in there that are kind of like neutral, like, right. They're not towards the chaos, but they also don't believe the emperor is the machine god, and they don't see anything wrong with like innovating and just pursuing science. Yeah, and in some ways, but see, like those people have to be hush hush because you know, just like how the Imperium's very kind of religious in a sense mm-hmm. on the way that they've uh, kind of changed their government system. The Mechanicum is kind of the same way, but with their technical religious beliefs right um so those innovator people have to kind of be quiet and calls actually one of the tech priests who's broken some of those rules from time to time he's actually innovated and then pretended like he found an stc or something um, <laughs> but he has to be careful but i like the fact that he's kind of like breaking the rules and he has this thing called the call inferior that's basically an artificial intelligence which is banned but he just doesn't call it an artificial intelligence right and um, so it got me thinking, like, okay, he's been around from what they've told us. He's been around for over 10,000 years. He breaks rules. He's really crazy. He's super secretive. So since I came up with my own Forge World color scheme recently and I started thinking up my own Forge World, I thought, well, the narrative I'll write, I'll come up with an alias for Call. Mm-hmm. It'll be like a clone backup copy of himself he created way back in his earlier years. And he sent this guy out and established a new Forge world way out on the fringe, further away from Mars, so that they could kind of get away with experimenting and doing whatever. Yep. And that's kind of the narrative I've written since I'm using a custom color scheme where when I play, I can maybe change the Forge world dogma rules I'm using 
and it fits the narrative of my army. It's not like, yeah. oh, why are you Mars, but you're using Stygies or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And instead, it's it's my own Forge world. So that was that was the concept I came up with. And, and um, what I've tried to do with all my armies is I've tried to somehow tie them to each other narratively. So right, right. my Forge world is out on the eastern fringe. It's in the Ardennes system, which is actually mm-hmm. named after... Um, one of the streets that, that uh, our unit was on when I was in the army, and no surprise, my scions live in the Ardennes system as well. Right, right. And so this Forge World is now kind of the one that outfits them and the other Imperial assets that are in the in the region. It's uh in a spot that I've carved out myself that's midway between kind of the Damocles Gulf and the Ultramar system. So, mm-hmm. um. Narratively speaking, they can they can kind of interact with pretty much anybody in the universe because on the on the maps I've looked at, almost everything somewhat converges through those those little regions there, from Necrons to Tyranids to Tower, obviously there. Yep. There's Orc Warbands. There's Space Marines. Um, so there's those guys. I have a couple um, um, knights, and mm-hmm. I decided to make them from House Griffith. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the forge world was first getting established, they, uh, their mining operations awakened a Tyranid hive fleet that was, uh, you know, sort of hibernating, mm-hmm. we'll say. And it's a high fleet. I just came up with a name for high fleet, uh, Cerebrus. Mm-hmm. And so I don't own Tyranids yet, but now I've got this narrative thing where I can, if I ever collect Tyranids, obviously they're going to be from that, you know, right. so there'll be, there'll be an enemy that's tied in with that. Or I could do gene stealer cults that are tied to that as well from mm-hmm. the miners. Um, but the forge world call, called for help. And there was some knights from house Griffith that wanted to slay the dragons. And, you know, so they came and assisted and then the ad worked up a bargain with them. Yeah. And they, the, those knights made a, a, you know, basically an oath, and now they live on the planet with them. So, so for me, it's like there's some of the armies have completely free reign mm-hmm. narrative that I cooked up, um, or some of them are tying from a character that the Games Workshop has that I like, and I've kind of built my own thing around them. And then some of them are like the House Griffith is pretty much I just give them their own names. Right. And and I gave them the backstory on how those guys got from where, you know, from Dragon's uh, Dragon's End to the, you know, Voltaic Prime where they live now. And they, they refer to it as Dragon's Reach, mm-hmm. which because it's so far from where Dragon's End was. Um, but but to me, that that's the one of the things I love about the hobby is just the. How many creative aspects there are, because you yeah, build yeah. these models, you paint them. Then you can give them names. You can give them meaningful stories. Yep. And the the way I kind of write my narratives is they're just kind of like those sections that are in the codex that have like the timelines and they just have little paragraph blurbs. Yeah, like the chronology section of right. following what they've, you know, if little highlighted events of them from the start of their you know, existence to now, basically. Right. That's, that's the way I like to write them. I, I feel like um, – I don't really, I mean, I probably could, but I don't really sit down and just write a whole story. Like, 
Right. A lot of times this is happening. I'm thinking about these things at work or, you know, when I'm doing whatever. Yep. Same. And and I'll just come up with these kind of little like snippets of, oh, these guys did this. And then they ran into these guys and they said, let's hook up together and take out this common foe, you know, or, or whatever. And and it, it gives my army a backstory without having to sit down and write like a 500 page novel yep. with all their motivations and specific battles. And then that gives me a framework for who are these guys and what motivates them and what drives them. And then when I'm playing games with them, now I'm going to make those guys operate. And they're, that's how they're going to make their decisions. Exactly. You know, based, based on how they think. Yeah. And and you're you're forging that, like you said, forge the narrative was this phrase that was being sort of thrown around. And it, it makes perfect sense as a means of describing what you're doing because – you are giving yourself motivation beyond just these two guys are fighting. I mean, at its core, that can be what the game is. And if you think about the game from match play terms and tournament terms, that's as deep as it has to go. Um, and, you know, that's sort of, um, I would say that regardless of how many narrative players there are versus how many match play players there are and tournament players there are um the tournament player scene is a very vocal group and uh i feel like the majority of sort of uh social media you know examples of people that play the game are from that world so there's sort of a, a dominant voice that is the tournament scene and a little bit that that worries me uh as far as people getting into the hobby for the first time feeling like if they want to tell a story or if they want to take a unit that is not maybe the most optimal um because they like it they're gonna the, get punished <laughs> they yeah they'll they'll get punished by people who are just sort of adopting tournament style lists because mm -hmm. that can be how local metas end up, you know, developing. And, um, that's not very inclusive, I think for, for people who are getting into the hobby for a different reason. And I think it can be very, uh, demoralizing. Um, so part of the point of the channel as I do it is to be inclusive of all player types. Um, and, I'm not a tournament player. I'm not a competitive player. I think I've always tried to build lists with a certain logic, and I think some of them have ended up definitely stronger than others, just sort of by chance um, more than by intention. But I think that uh, you and I are sort of in the same boat, Jesse, as far as where you draw motivation from for playing and why you do it. And... Um, you know, the, the point of uh, my channel, really, the, the large sort of big draw of it, I think, is going to be the narrative campaign battle reports that, I'm, that I've begun and will continue to develop and expand on the narrative and cinematic aspect of those things. Um, but in so doing, I knew that I wasn't going to do this unless I had a story um, mm -hmm. of my own making. So what I did was I tried to find this niche sort of um, place 
where a lot of activity could be occur- occurring, which is I, you know, the same area basically as what you just described, uh, sort of um, that that middle ground region between the Damocles Gulf, um, you know, adjacent to the Ultramar Province, um, and it's sort of that that area has so much um, different types of forces that are in the 40k universe so right um you know the the core campaign is sort of starting with um the tau faction who just recently settled the the most recent sphere expansion um and in uh you know as the imperium is sort of preparing a retaliatory strike which these are it's a very slow to build but uh once it really hits it hits like a you know a mac truck it's this incredibly massive coalition force of all these assembled imperium um you know disparate factions that are assembled together basically because of a um a call being put out by the the bureaucracy that is the greater imperium um <clears throat> and all these forces came together to retaliate and take back this this territory and the tau uh knowing this was going to happen they sort of consolidated their forces and pulled back so that they could more easily defend the territory that they took but they left sort of skeleton defense emplacements on the farthest fringes of the uh territory that they've taken and um one of those outposts worlds on the on the very edge of the newly acquired tau space is where all this action will sort of be taking place and um it was an imperial world that's being occupied by the tau and over the course of the campaign we'll see that many more forces actually have sort of a stake in this region um much like you know i was inspired basically by when i was a kid i remember when the uh, armageddon war started and um that was like a massive sprawling uh narrative event that took place um in the in the world of 40k and the outcome of it was actually dictated by a giant worldwide tournament uh scene where they would take the results from games happening all over the world to sort of dictate what happened oh. Oh, wow <laughs> it was incredible and they and they would turn it into a story you know in in the long run and um it was just this it was incredible the way that they that they did it was incredible and um i was so inspired because like so many different factions were in that but it it all felt very organic because of the nature of the 41st millennium as it had already been sort of structured by the writers at games workshop and um you know you end up getting into these like really messy melees of all these different armies sort of fighting together unexpected allies out of you know this forced scenario um and i don't want to give away like sort of the entire sprawling narrative that I have planned and also not uh, not only that but I want the outcomes of the games that I play to sort of dictate where the campaign ends up going so it's not structured that that much because I'm essentially going to it's almost like a pick your own adventure book except right. so you have a roadmap of kind of like yeah 
where you're trying to kind of drive things. Right. Um, and, you know, I know that there are certain factions that will be coming into it at a certain point. Um, I have my own admic force. Um, this is actually a good example of just like, you know, this is these are the, the ways in which we become personally invested in these in these armies that we play. And like you said, once you come up with these things, it can dictate even how you're uh, making the army function on the table. And that means not always playing the gamiest, most strategically viable thing just because it'll win you the game. Um, it means just playing the army as you would imagine essentially your role playing as your commander. Right. Um, and, and that I think it's makes the games, you know, the most exciting that they can. It's sort of like if you're expanding a game of Dungeons and Dragons to, you know, an entire army instead of an individual. Um, and obviously the games of D and D are, are at their most fun when your character is, is well developed enough that the decisions you're making aren't aren't just gamey decisions where you're like asking the dm weird questions that make no sense as a as a person in the world trying to figure out how to function in that in that world um instead you're making choices that you think that character would make and you're trying as much as you can to sort of uh, make the fact that you're playing a game be like an invisible aspect of the experience. Right. Um, so like in the case of my, um, this is an interesting, I think like evolution of concept basically. So in the case of my ad mech, I'd sort of built a list a long time ago, just sort of based on the models I liked it. Originally the list was built in seventh edition, but I knew that I wanted the list to focus around, um, a like the one thing that I really wanted was a bunch of, um, of, uh, dragoons, Sidonian dragoons. And I wanted to give them radium Gisales cause I never saw that. And I thought it was super cool and just like stylistically and aesthetically, I thought that was an incredibly, unique and an awesome thing that the admec had access to. So that was sort of my core that I wanted to build an army around. And then I built an army around it. Um, and then as eighth edition came and I was like, man, what do I actually, what, what is this army? What is the, you know, where do they come from? What are their, what's their whole thing? Um, I realized that I, basically came up with this idea that there's like actually a ton of snipers in the army and their infantry choices are made up largely of, um, Skitari Rangers with transurenic archibuses. Um, and the, uh, Sidonian Dragoons with the Radium Gisales. And I specifically sort of focused around those like sniper type units. And then I thought, Oh, what if this was like a sort of roving, um, esoteric admec force that pops up seemingly out of nowhere and then sort of does these strange uh, exchanges for uh, xenotech or archaeotech that they that they somehow they hear about it seemingly before anyone else does and then they pop up and they say do you you know we will exchange our services for these goods and their mm -hmm. services are essentially they're a massive like bounty hunting task force um so i knew that in like the lore of the 
codex, um, you know, rangers are are famous for be, like being basically tireless trackers, and they right. can just hunt down a target for days and days and days, and they'll never stop. And um, that to me was like, it's you know, it all clicked suddenly when I was thinking about it one night, and I thought, oh, you know, he assembles these amazing this army of trackers. Well, what's the purpose? It's to it's to track. So he utilizes the inherent skills of this of this group of rangers and um you know the dragoons as these like very fast tracking strider units with um these with these sniper rifles and then he hunts down targets of interest that are of high value to high paying sellers maybe um planetary governors and whatnot who have um through either nefarious means or just general influence they've procured items that maybe don't mean much to, to them other than they can add it to their, you know, vast bloated collections of random stuff that makes them feel like important, uh, you know, collectors of, of ancient stuff. And, um, but to, to this, uh, his name is Cryptus Holt, the, um, Admech, uh, tech priest ominous that I have leading this force to him. These things have great value because they can literally, he can use them to, um, rebuild like his, his soldiery and his forge, um, from the ground up, he can repurpose them and he can, he can innovate. And in that way, he's an outcast because as you said before, um, innovation is not something the admech, uh, look upon kindly. Um, so he's a bit of a pariah in that regard. And then I looked at, um, you know, Stygies and how there's sort of a subset of the Stygian um, forge world that you actually spoke of in the uh, previous podcast called the Xenorites, mm -hmm, where right. they're like tech obsessed specifically with Xenotech, which is a big no-no in, you know, right. the overall Imperium. Um, and they choose to... Uh, emphasize their collection of those things specifically, these relics, and reverse engineer them and repurpose them. And maybe those things largely are why he's able to just pop up seemingly out of nowhere and initiate well, that's their, sort of that's their webway tech. Yeah, and 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 no one else really knows how they're doing it. But so well, I I have a theory because they. I believe it was during the Horus Heresy mm -hmm. that Stygies was under attack. It's in the Codex and those little chronological things we were talking about. That's where I right. got all my, my lore from them. I just happened to remember them specifically because it was just so, like, crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but the Aldari intervened and saved them. Yeah. And I want to say it was Craftworld Bealtan. Mm-hmm. But then those people that got saved by them kind of got enthralled by them along with the technology. And I'm, so I'm, I'm sure that they helped them with the webway tech. Right. They were able to, you know, reverse engineer it. That, doing stuff that is like tech heresy yeah. within the ad mech. But, but it's so interesting because it's, it's different than what you typically see. Right. And it, in the in the case of the admech, I mean, for them to make decisions like this is largely sort of them rewiring the hard drive that is their that is their brain um, to allow for you know the expanded 
um, inclusion of tech that is outside the acceptable norm. Um, so in that sense, he's largely made himself an outcast and he's largely untrusted by other Imperium forces. And his participation in the Meritus campaign of my uh, channel is was actually, he sort of, uh, no one actually thinks that he was called upon or, you know, conscripted by anyone. It was more that he sort of showed up uh, right off the bat to volunteer for the campaign. And everyone sort of assumed because of his willingness and his presence there that there must be personal motivation. But no one's questioning it yet because he hasn't done anything uh, too you know, off the books yet in this particular theater. <laughs> he hasn't gone off script yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it'll, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with him. I'm, I'm going to try to make that a very, uh, unique and interesting aspect of the, uh, campaign. Um, so it, it's interesting to see, you know, how from such humble beginnings, you can come up with this whole world building exercise and, mm-hmm. um, and that army now is shaped by what I came up with for Cryptus Holt and his sort of bounty hunting task force. And the idea that, you know, the way that that army will function in game and on the table will largely be dictated by what I think Cryptus Holt would do in a given scenario. Um, and not by how can I win this game against my human opponent? Um, because that's not really the purpose. And I also think that as a narrative player, what excites me is making a game feel as theatrical as possible. And oftentimes playing to win is not conducive to that. Um, right. Those well, can be. It, it goes back to something we've talked about a lot, which I, I think, and we're not the only ones that think this. It, mm-hmm. it really is true of the hobby that it is what you make it. Exactly. And you're going to have the most um, – uh, now I'm having a brain fart. But you're going to have the best experience possible um, for all parties involved if you can seek out the people that are trying to get the same thing out of it that you are or exactly. as close to it as you can. So, so with your narrative games that you're trying to tell a story that you want to do these cinematic-type things for – your opponents really have to kind of, for it to be successful or as mm-hmm. successful as it could be, you really need your opponents to kind of be on that same page with you where, you know, your your admech force is kind of like this sniper force, essentially. So yeah. without trying to just give you a softball victory, like the types of lists that should go up against it in most cases would be what they're designed to do. So they should be like character-heavy Right. Type stuff like Gene Steeler Colts or Guard, where when you take those characters out, it's going to make that other army kind of like uh, crumble. You yeah. Because yeah. that's what they would do. And and I feel like that would make a better story. Now, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't always come up against other types of opposition, but, but still having your lists be uh, somewhat balanced to what's in them versus who they're facing. And, and it's that's, I think an art more than it is a science. Yeah, I think so too. Um, It's a, it's a very specific sort of skill and, and it's not just a skill. I think it's also, 
it's a uh, it's a certain networking that I'll have to do um, in order to find the right people. And obviously, I've already sort of assembled, you know, like a starting crew to help me in this mission that is the channel. Um, and mostly, it seems like everyone is uh, on. I have enough people that are on board with that idea, but at the same time, it it may still prove challenging to negotiate, um, you know, scenarios in which people think you know stop thinking about trying to win the game and right start thinking about oh. telling a story um mm. it's you know that's a delicate balance and it's not it's not for me to say stop trying to win the game so that i can win the game for the purpose of the story it's right we we need to both be in the mindset that we're telling a story here not that we're trying to make sure that we're milking every single optimization out of this list and out of this game um because that to me and that's the tricky part you know because it's like you even within the realm of like players that are interested in the game telling a story and being narrative like it's kind of in human nature to want to win yeah and um and that's like I, i said earlier that some of my the games I've had the most fun in were ones where I lost but it's because the story was epic um right you know and I, I, one of them was against my daughter when with her space wolves and my thousand sons and and I was role playing my thousand sons. The sorcerers were all arrogant. They were going for glory for themselves, so they would charge in. You know yeah. where I wouldn't do that if I was actually thinking about. Of course, you know because yeah. like this guy's. You know even if he does, he might come out on top because it's not like he's a slouch, but. You know, um, but they're space Ar- wolves. <laughs> Ariman on a disc, like charging into two wolf lords, essentially on thunder wolves. Yeah, yeah that's not that's not something he's going to want to do. Right. Um, but that's the way I did it. You know, because mm-hmm. that's that's the the you know, in my thousand sons army, I have. I well, I've actually I think I've done it in all of my armies that I have named characters in. Now I've given them my own name but i mm-hmm. use the rules and the model for for that character so he's he's his own his own character but he's very arrogant right um and so and all my sorcerers were like that that's that's the way the thousand sons are so right so if you read the the narrative of that the thousand sons and you want your army to perform the way that thousand sons might in an actual battle scenario within the logic of the of the you know Warhammer forty thousand narrative experience, they they are arrogant. They have immense mm-hmm. hu- hubris, and it's part of the reason that they're you know a damned uh, legion essentially. Right. Um, and and the, it still bites them uh, in the ass when they you know right when they behave well, like that. In the games that we played, they always made for epic moments exactly. win or lose because the thing too is my warlord was basically uh making a a beeline for the space wolf or warlord. Mm-hmm. So you end up with these warlord on warlord battles which in any battle report you've watched where you end up with those especially where they're combat or both of them are decent in combat they make for great moments no matter what's going on. So they're always so fun. Not only playing to the narrative role of my guys, but it ended up setting up these scenarios that are just like, Oh my gosh, because, um, there was one, um, one game where 
he kept I was casting Doom Bolt on her Thunderwolf cavalry that was coming up and I kept getting it. Like I <laughs> it's it's like a warp charge of nine or something like that. Yeah. And I kept successfully casting it and it would do mortal wounds and then have the distance of those Thunderwolf cavalry. So my yeah. daughter was trying to bring her wolf lord up with these Thunderwolf cavalry escorts and they couldn't keep up with her because I kept killing them and right. slowing them down. And every round I was doing that. And she charged into combat with me with her wolf lord. And since you can cast psychic powers while you're still in combat, I I was basically I was able to eliminate those Thunderwolf cavalry from ever making it into combat. And then we right. traded blows back and forth and she ultimately ended up taking him down. Yeah. But I think she was all the way down to two wounds left or three wounds. So I mean it, it was close for either of us. And and there was this epic moment where they're both engaged on their mounts battling each other, but he still has the presence of mind to, you know, send these psychic bolts out to these reinforcements. They're trying to come up and aid her. Right. So it just set up this really cool moment. And, yeah. uh, and I, I just, to touch back on the, the narrative of your armies and the different approaches you can take, like mm-hmm. um, I've got some where I've kind of, gone with what games workshop has already kind of created for armies i've i've gone with some that i've done my own kind of thing um and i i know there's some people out there that basically just copy it's almost like historical type things and and that's cool too like you know there's just there's so many different ways you can go about it and then even with with your admech where you found this kind of Although they're a little more popular now but they but stygies was very was somewhat obscure Mm -hmm. um like you don't have to wait for games workshop to do that. Like, right. You you know, you can, you can make up your own forge world that does that. Like if they hadn't had a forge world that was already specifically like obsessed with Xenos tech, like you could totally just create that yourself. Yeah. And that's what I love about this hobby is, is, is it's like, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with the people that love following the, the established lore. It's almost kind of like if, if this was, um, historical mini wargaming where you're just reenacting battles from World War II or whatever, where where the goal is to just recreate, you know, like these characters you already know about. Game. Yeah, right. You could do that same kind of thing. Like, um, you know, here's the Ultramarines and here's this particular named character. And rather than me giving him a different name, it is him. And I'm going to, um, you know, I read a novel with him in it and he had this company and it was organized like these and you're just recreating that. That's awesome. Like super cool. I just love there being some kind of story motivation to it rather than, well, these guys cost this many points and they can take out this many points of stuff. And so they're more efficient for how much they cost versus what they can do. So that's why I'm going to bring them. And then, you know, I'm not even going to build something around them because I mean, even that could be fine as long as you build something around them that makes sense. But it's like, no, I'm going to bolt this guy here and I'm going to bolt this thing on here and then I'm going to bring these guys over here to generate CP to fuel these guys to make them even more powerful on the team. Exactly. Yeah. Like that stuff just drives me up the wall, but That's the that's the that's little your 32. Thing, that's your thing, but that's not yeah. my thing. And it's that's I think again like you said it's the beauty of the hobby that there is plenty of room for that in the hobby and I don't you know I, I, I have no qualms about people that want to do that. Um, 
it's just not the kind of game that I'm looking for. But there's yeah, a lot. Here. Yeah, there's a lot of room in the hobby to find someone who wants the same things as you. And um, the hobby is only ever seemingly acquiring more hobbyists. So, you know, the likelihood of you finding like-minded people is going up all the time. Um, which and the internet too. I mean, now the downside is like for you and I, because of the distance, we can't really get together and play games, but right. there's still a lot of valuable hobby, um, sharing that we can do from, you know, ideas. Mm-hmm. Hey, I was writing up this, these concepts for my guys. What do you think? You know, and, um, yeah, and, and not only that, but we, we created, um, Oh, you know, yes. I was actually going to talk about this at some yeah, point. Where we, we created a scenario where our forces are in a shared universe. I mean, right, it's all right. shared within the 40K universe, but we, we specifically like merged our merge our narratives. Yeah, so right. you you had a local tournament that you were going to with your Tau, and um, you ended up creating, you know, two of the members of your Tau kill team uh, were sort of like earlier in yeah, life can, versions I you can, can go set into this up um yeah. and i'm just forewarning you i might get emotional at some point but um so when i first started the hobby the very first models i collected and i don't remember if i mentioned this before but they were towel models so i got a a the new commander with the cold star variant kit which is just an amazing kit beautiful kit um so i got that i got a riptide and i got a pathfinder box of pathfinders and that was um i ended up not really sticking with them mainly because i kind of didn't choose it myself and it doesn't mean that they aren't cool models and it's a cool army but um i didn't i didn't pick it for myself so yeah there wasn't the emotional connection uh initially that i think you i feel like you need to have with your first army right um i also had no experience painting other than when i was a kid with like plastic cars and jets, but they were different types of paints. They were like enamel paints. And, you know, so I didn't know you're supposed to thin your paints. So here I get these models. I try to stick them together. Um, probably didn't do a really good job, like cleaning up the edges and stuff. I'm, I'm much more aware of that stuff now. Yep. But I painted them straight out of the pot. Um, I think with the pathfinders, I was dismayed at like how tiny they were. I knew they were going to be small, but I was just like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then, you know, you see the amazing artwork on the box and like, I know I'm not going to achieve that, but it just seemed like, wow, it seemed impossible. It's really hard. And it's like, these don't look quite as good. Um, And then because I wasn't thinning my paints, they had kind of lumpy finishes. Mm -hmm. And so that Cold Star Commander, um, which I'm kind of glad I built the Cold Star variant because it just looks so much cooler. Uh, In seventh, the rules were kind of stupid. They're much Mm -hmm. better now. Yeah. Um, But that's that's a, you know, tangent. Um, but yeah, I built, built these models, did kind of a crappy job on the paint job, but that's fine. Cause that's how you learn. You know, then I started sure. learning how to do stuff better. I got into a different army. Those models all went in a box and in the closet. And then it was, um, uh, January 2nd, uh, 2018. Um, I was, I had gone to work and I always get to work early on the days that I have to go into the shop to get my, um, my vehicle restocked mm-hmm. just just to avoid the the traffic and all that and my wife uh was calling me and she never calls me when i'm at work unless it's something important and i 
I answered the phone and I'm like, what up? What's up? And um, she's like, uh, Giovanni was killed last night. And uh, Giovanni's my brother-in-law that I had known for uh, 11 years. And it was just like, what? And um, so a little bit about him. He never got into 40K with me, but he was kind of interested. He, we, we played a lot of video games together throughout the years. Um, we... He lived out in the country out here, so we would uh, we would go out to his property. It was far enough out that we could just shoot uh, shoot guns, and so we were always doing shooting get-togethers. You know, he had he had uh, several different guns. We'd shoot clay pigeons. You know, he had a little launcher for those. So we spent a lot of time together. He was really into Japanese, all kinds of Japanese like themed stuff. Anime, Street Fighter was real big. He loved mm-hmm. Dragon Ball Z. Uh, he was into Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon. Um, so I, I know that if he had gotten into 40K, he probably would have ended up with Tao because of the obvious um, aesthetic, you know, right. Japanese Gundam robot looking thing. And then also their culture is very oriented that way. And mm-hmm. um, so then it was it was that summer. It was in June or July that uh, I was just reflecting on how far I've come as a painter since when I started and I was like, Oh, I threw those models in a box somewhere. Those original models, I should get those out. Mm-hmm. And I got out the cold star commander and I carefully like kind of broke him apart, which, which actually wasn't as, as hard as I thought because I, <laughs> I'm not as, I wasn't as good at putting the models together <laughs> as I am now. So right. it came apart pretty, pretty easily. And then I stripped it mm-hmm. and I decided I was going to repaint it with, um, the new skills I have and in a different color scheme than I originally did as a tribute. And then that was going to be representative of Giovanni Mm -hmm. um, for a Tau army that I still have yet to build. Um, I've done, done a few units for kill team. Right. Um, I've repainted my riptide and then I repainted, uh, repainted that cold star commander. But um, he had a lot of uh, challenges in his, in his life before, uh, the car accident he was involved in and, um, he had his wife leave him, um, and left, left their kids with him. No interest. She, um, had been cheating on him for like two years before that with a coworker of hers. He had just recently had a daughter. Um, she was not quite a year old when, uh, when she took off mm-hmm. and then there within the family, there was, uh, you know, talk of well maybe it isn't even his kid and his attitude was even if she's not biologically my daughter she's my daughter right and i'm her daddy and so he kind of his life almost kind of encompassed that greater good kind of aspect of the Tao. so i just i felt like it was a good universe representation of him right and that was something i was able to do as a memorial piece to maybe kind of deal with it but but i rebuilt rebuilt that model painted it up um that was when i started kind of practicing doing freehand stuff so Mm -hmm. i i did the all the sept markings on there i looked at the decals to copy the some of the designs but i did them all freehand and then to represent all the struggles and things he'd been through i did some battle damaging you know gashes and gave him kind of a because normally it seems like people tend to kind of paint towel all like pristine like their suit just came out of the factory often yeah you know and uh i gave him like a very lived in 
look. Very and look, uh, yeah. so then I took his name and, and changed it into t- kind of a Tao idea. So it's it's uh, Shazo Jovani, mm-hmm. and then gave him the nickname Commander Nova Strike. Um, yeah. And then it was during that time that I think we were kind of having a a bit of a Tao bonding discussion through Discord, and it was kind of like, hey, let's let how would you be opposed to us merging the narrative? Cause we had both, I didn't pick Tosh Var as my sept world, knowing that that's who you had picked for yours as well. Right. Yeah. It was, a I just, yeah. I liked the red from Viorla, but I kind of liked the corn red look better. Yeah. And that was like the red that was from Tosh Var. And then the cool thing there was, was with the, with the custom schemes of, you can kind of flexibly, uh, change your, your traits, you know? Right. In, in the game so and then it, then i found out that oh that was the same except <laughs> world you chose so it was like yeah. well since these guys that we've come up with are both from the same you know world what about maybe having their their paths cross at some point and yep. and we came up with the idea of they're both commanders now mm-hmm. but way back in their early days they were fire warriors in the same squad yeah and then throughout their you know, eventually they got promoted and they kind of went their separate ways. And then now as commanders, they're able to assist each other in battle, you know, from time to time and they get to to reunite. And so exactly. then when my local store was doing their kill team, their organized kill team campaign, that was the, the concept I did. And, and I kind of built that squad with the idea of our two commanders and their origin story, so to speak. So they were they were in a um, elite team of survivors. Um, yep. I don't remember. This is the funny thing. I probably should have written this stuff down somewhere. I don't remember the the overall story that I gave for it, but it was the the concept was with the kill team because it's such a random grouping of guys. You know, there was a couple breachers, a couple pathfinders, a couple cell suits, a couple fire warriors. They were the survivors of a hunter cadre that was pretty much almost all wiped out. Mm-hmm. fighting the orcs and um so they were kind of regrouping and trying to find their way back to a larger segment of their of their brothers right. to kind of reintegrate or something and so then that, that was the, the the concept i had for my guys and then every mission that i played at the store um no matter who my opponent was i would try to come up with some kind of narrative on their quest to make yeah. it back and oh they ran into these guys or they saw some harlequins over here checking something out so they you know pursued them and investigated to, to see what they were up to yeah and it was almost like you were writing like after every game you would write like a sort of journal entry from the perspective of of your your who would be one day this commander nova strike um, uh, no, I think I was writing from the, or from from the, the perspective, perspective of Ashwalker because the, right. the way I the way I ended up structuring it was, um, basically I had just because Giovanni was kind of sometimes kind of hot blooded, so mm-hmm. it it seemed fitting to kind of, um, just all the choices I made for what I chose. Like I probably would tend to run Viorla, right? Um, with them where they're the the very mobile. And that's the whole point of the, him being in the cold star. In the cold star, suit, right? Is that he can have this forty-inch advance, right? And blast you, you know, and and get in, get out. So I I had him in the kill team. I had him as a breacher at the point. Um, right. So he was he was um a Shazui, 
um, Breacher, who was mm-hmm. a demolition specialist, and then Ashwalker was the. Uh, of course, the, these aren't at this time. They hadn't been given these titles yet, um, right. but he was the the more cool, collected, strategic fire warrior with the longer range. So that was that was kind of the you had I think had already established that for him. Yeah. yeah. So I was trying to keep your stuff that you had written true. Mm-hmm. to what you already came up with and then i was kind of doing like a contrasting which i, th- right. I felt like fit well with within the towel that they're it very it fits very well. kind of you know they're, yeah, they're yeah. different they're different resources that have a common goal they're you know they're going to work together um and so that's because ash walker was the leader of my kill team the mm-hmm. journal entries were from his accounting right okay yeah and and i remember you sort of reporting back after each game you would send me these little synopses as written (laughs) like you know journal entries uh right from my what would end up being my commander ash walker but in his sort of formative years when he was this you know survivalist uh strike team fire warrior alongside what was you know uh, a comrade in arms, this breacher, who eventually they both proved themselves through trial of arms and became commanders in their own right. But they started as brothers who, uh, after this, would have you know gone through this bonding knife ritual probably to um, right. unite themselves oh. um, as a, you know as a common as common soldiery um, and as brothers in arms the way that Tao do, which is you know unique to their culture. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it was a really cool way for, and you know, this is only possible because of the advent of social media and the internet that, you know, we never would have interacted otherwise, but Mm -hmm. because we both care about the same aspects of the game and because we both you know, allow ourselves to sort of have this personal resonance within the characters we built. We thought it was this really cool um, sort of experience to unite the worlds that we were building into into one thing and have this uniting factor as like you basically role playing the history of these two characters that united our forces. And um, whether or not they're always together later in life, it still created this bond you know, um, that they never let go of, um, as individuals. And that's a well, really, not oh. to get too mushy here too. It's it's almost kind of like you and I were able to use this narrative to create a, a stronger bond as, as friends. Yeah, I agree. We're doing a hobby because both of these characters have personal ties to each of us in different ways. But, you know, like, like I've hopefully, been trying to kind of because when I was thinking about this earlier this week, I was thinking about all of my armies and I I have a narrative focus for all of them, but all of them are drastically different, you know, right? Um, for the motivations or or what where that came from and just how different it can it can be. And this is even with our our guys having their narrative linked. It's it's um it goes like above and beyond just us playing a narrative game. Yeah. Where we both really enjoy the story that happened. It's like now it's not just one shared experience between this army and that army. It's like their their identity is now interwoven, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's cool. And I feel like it's a 
better narrative for both both sides than they would have been by themselves. I, yeah, I agree. It's it's a beautiful expansion of what we had both come up with individually, and it bridged this gap that both brought us closer, despite the fact that you know we live on opposite sides of the country. We we had this uniting factor that was like even more of a bonding uh, experience than like if just us communicating in general through the discord or whatever, which, you know, you and I originally started talking in on the, uh, Morehammer discord. Mm-hmm. And, um, basically you followed me along when I started my own channel here and you've been a huge, um, supporter of the channel from the beginning. And I feel like it was, it was that kind of experience very early on that has, you know, been a reason that you've been such an integral part of the channel in general. Right. And, um, and you know that extends to like just our our friendship as as human beings too and the fact that we find sort of the same value in the hobby as one another which you know that that isn't just a given like i think people are always going to be taking a different thing out of the game mm-hmm. and the the way that you and i both embrace narrative and what the the what narrative even means to both of us is something that's very similar and something that we share when maybe other hobbyists, people within the community don't think of it the same way. Um, So I think there's a lot of value in that, not only because like, you know, you find the way that the game is the most fun to you. um, And I mean, you as in the audience, the general you, yeah. Yeah. Um, But also, uh, you can find out sort of it, it builds a deeper connection with people maybe in like a very specific way that, you know, you realize, oh, people really dig the same sort of like storytelling experience as I do or um, and it doesn't have to be the narrative. It's like you can you can bond with people over other aspects of the hobby that you both really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And um, and for us, you know, probably the biggest part of it that we both enjoy is the, the way that we interpret the narrative, the way that we build narratives around each of our armies and all the narrative, you know, all of our armies have very disparate narrative elements. They're not, it's not all sort of the same thing. Um, it's just that the, the Tau happened to be like the one that we were going through at the same time and, and bonding over. And, um, and the other ones are are just fun, fluffy experiences that we both really enjoy uh, learning about. For, like when the other is going through something, and right. it helps us it helps us sort of be cheerleaders for one another, um, which I think helps just maintain our um, momentum in the hobbying in general. As far as you know, what you focus on next, and your ability to keep up with painting and all that stuff, you know, that comes from a place of, of like hyper-focusing, um, and, and being assisted in your focus by other people who are sort of goading you on in a really positivistic way. Um, and I feel like that is something that we both had and you've always been really supportive of like, you know, you, you're basically someone who's been there to observe my evolution as a painter really. Um, (laughs) and you know, you've seen, 
you've seen a big arc of like where my painting has gotten to from where it had been just uh, uh-huh. about a year ago. I, and I think to touch on that, I think all of us get tunnel vision. Yeah. In your yeah, yeah. own painting, because you're you're seeing it like all the time, mm-hmm. whereas like. Now you're sharing pictures all the time, but like. I don't know, it's it's hard to explain, but it's kind of like, you know, when a, a relative maybe who even sees your children all the time. Right. But they see the growth more than, you know, they see the changes better than you do because right. you're around them all the time. It's kind of the same thing, like even with my own painting, like. Oh, you know, doesn't I'm just painting, painting, painting. And then if I grab something that I painted like six months ago, it's like, oh, wow. Like I've really come a long way. But it's I feel like when you share stuff, like even though you're always doing that, like I'm seeing the, And that's why I always try to encourage everyone, you know, don't stop painting because my first painting looked like crap. (laughs) Yeah. But then I started learning and um, I even had a buddy who. He hasn't actively been in in Warhammer in the hobby for a long time, but he played way back in fifth edition and he's kind of the one that got me into the hobby. And and he kind of like patronizingly was mocking my painting at first. But um, now he's just like, my God, man, he's like, look at you. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I've come a long way. There's a long way to go. But the biggest thing is don't stop learning. Don't stop painting. Yep. Compare yourself to yourself. Don't right. get discouraged by looking at the, you know, Martin Wallers in the world. Uh, <laughs> not to put him down. He's incredible. But yeah. But. He started out just like we did at some point. And the mm-hmm. other thing that he's also told people is to paint at his level, you have to spend eight hours painting one shoulder pad for a space marine. Exactly. And people generally don't want to put that amount of time into it. You know, so if you unless you do that, you're not going to achieve that. But it doesn't mean you can't get great standards. And Mm -hmm. I've tried to encourage people where where I can and pass along the things that I've learned. Um, I mean, Till is an amazing painter now. Yeah. And I remember back when he was doing uh i think it was a redemptor dreadnought for his dark angels and mm-hmm. he had the plasma weapon on it and he was he was asking and it was in the Morehammer discord but he was asking like um should i try to do a plasma glow or something as i uh, and i was like dude go for a plasma glow glow yeah and he's like, but i don't know how and i had just recently been kind of figuring out how to do plasma glow to where i, I felt like it looked good mm-hmm. and i've since gotten a little better at it um but I had just taken a couple shots, uh, I think like a month earlier, like progress shots on my phone and I saved them. Yeah. Because I had some other guys asking me about them and I and I was using the uh, plasma conduit scenery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I just showed him those sequence of shots and just kind of explained what you do. And it involved doing pretty much dry brushing for most of it to get those soft blends. Yeah. And then just using... You didn't have to use specifically the colors I used, but I took a picture of just the five or six different blue blues that I used, and you just get a gradient range up to white. Yep. If you're doing the blue plasma, and I think it was like an hour or two mm-hmm. passed by, and then he posted a picture, and it was like, in my opinion, it looked better than anything I had ever done. <laughs> and this was the first time he had done plasma. Yeah. 
was just like, whoa, look at you go. Yeah, I mean, you you learn basically, you know, if you have the tools of someone else telling you what they what they did and you can stand on the shoulders of those who've come before you, Mm -hmm. you you can I mean, you'll really you can be amazed at at what you can get done and and how much you can improve. And I can't stress enough, like just doing it will make you better like mm-hmm. painting a lot will make you practice. better at painting you have you have to do these techniques over and over right. and over and over and there's no there's no getting around it and and i've heard this from some of the heavy metal painters that have been on the vox cast mm-hmm. that when they've been asked those questions um that's that's what they they refer back to and and they're exactly right it's yeah. it's like the karate kid you know with the painting up and down on a fence and it's like yeah. well, what does this have to do with karate well you're practicing these motions you know yeah. so so edge highlighting you just got to do it and do it and do it and you're going to get better at it you're going to get quicker at it you're going to get profi- more proficient at it everybody's yep. going to progress at a different level sure um, some techniques might be more naturally uh you might be naturally just grabbing it more inclined Other people to might do, struggle yeah. it struggle with it um some people have different opinions on what looks good and what doesn't look good i i admire and respect the effort that goes into edge highlighting every little thing Mm -hmm. personally i don't like the way that that looks on most models i like Mm -hmm. i like my stuff to kind of have the star wars lived in yeah kind of idea that george lucas had when he came up with star wars where it was like things are dirty and you know it's 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 believable it's lived in it's not pristine fresh out of the package yeah, there's like off a, the assembly line, but a retro tech vibe to it all. Yeah. Right. And some of the techniques I've learned myself, mm-hmm. you have to trust the process. And like yeah. that plasma glow is kind of one of those. Like it doesn't look good until you're done. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, totally true. You'll get two or three steps into it and you'll go, this looks like crap. Never mind. Yeah. And you have to get all the way through it. And so that and that just once again, that comes with experience. Yep. You know, like I watch those tutorials and I'm like, but mine doesn't look like that. You know, right. you start eventually training yourself to to do it. And, and and yeah, just never give up painting. Yeah. Um, and ask questions of people that that you when you get the opportunities to that do something that that where you've made that value judgment that they're a better painter than you, um, mm-hmm. you know, because you're always saying that I'm a better painter than than you are but you're amazing buddy well thanks man i mean i think in in regards to that point of of talking to other people i love talking about this stuff i love talking about techniques even if i feel like i can't do them well i still feel like there are things that i've been able to show people um And, you know, when I come up with my actually one of the most rewarding things from like a painting perspective was coming up with my own colors for my uh, Eldar craft world and having people say, like, you know, your particular color palette has inspired me to to like Eldar, basically, when when once I didn't. They're different than what you typically see. I mean, Winters calls them Skittles and rightfully (laughs) so, because. Most of the craft worlds you see in, you know, the um, in the codex, I guess the quote unquote official craft worlds, they're all bright, cheery colors. And um, the little bit that you've kind of explained to me about the Eldar 
and where they are now, mm-hmm. narratively speaking, why are they wearing bright colors? Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. They're kind of like in this sad transition. They're a very melancholic race. Like, absolutely. So it does seem very strange to me that they're displaying such bright, vibrant colors all the time. Calling them Skittles is very appropriate, mm-hmm. I think. Right. Um, well, I, I so think that also ties into the whole aspect warrior thing, too, of like, no matter for the most part, no matter what craft world they come from, the aspect warriors wear the colors of their, of of their, their aspect, aspect yeah. rather than, you know, so you end up with, uh, you know, craft world, whatever, and they've got the same, you know, red, green, blue, yellow, <laughs> and right. then the other craft world over here has the same, you know, red, green, blue, yellow, but they have yep. different, uh, you know, maybe compositions of those and, and tactics on how they go about. But, uh, right. You know, the, the point you just made about talking with others um, is something I kind of wanted to bring up that we've discussed to each other how we're both like introverts and we yes. don't typically talk to people. And, you know, that's one thing that's been kind of cool about this hobby is uh, if you're willing to do that, take that risk in mm-hmm. uh, uh, so many of the communities that are out here, they're relatively positive. For the mm-hmm. most part, and um, it, maybe uh, I might be painting with a broad brush here, but maybe stay away from places like Reddit or some yeah. of those because there's a lot of uh, keyboard warriors. Yeah, there can be a lot trying, of that. trying to be right mm-hmm. in a subject where there really it doesn't have to be a right or wrong. It could just be you know what is important to you. But in the couple discords that I've been in with yours and then the, the one that you have to be a, a patron for Warhammer. Yeah. There's an amazing amount of positivity, mm-hmm. um, constructive criticism. If there yes. is any criticism. Yeah. And most of the time there's the criticisms only come if you welcome them. Right. With the exception of maybe list building, list building seems to be the only place that people always seem to offer their two cents, whether you want it or not. <laughs> um, but it's not done in a negative way in either of those. Right. Um, but as far as like the being afraid to maybe post pictures of your painting because you don't because you see other people posting pictures and you've got this opinion of yep. what the models look like. My my biggest fear is if we ever do get to meet, you're going to see my models in person and be like, <laughs> oh, they're not all that. <laughs> they just look great on camera. I um, yeah, but, I'm sure I won't feel that way. <laughs> right. But, you know, so for me, when I joined the Morehammer one, it was kind of, I knew I wasn't like a, a, a noob at You're painting. Right. Um, not being cocky or arrogant, I knew my painting was good. You yeah. know, it pleased me. I liked the way it looked. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm way better now than I was when I first joined. And part of it's because I took the risk to put myself put myself out there and show my work. And I, I, I think the reason why sometimes we're afraid to do that, and this can even come from your narrative too, if you're writing a narrative for your story mm-hmm. is, you know, you've touched on it several times. We, these armies are personal, right? Yeah. yeah. So we spend a lot of time building them, painting them, um, thinking about them, playing games with them, uh, for some of us creating stories for them. Mm-hmm. Some of those stories, um, like I've shared might be based off of, you know, personal experiences or, you know, loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so there's there's a there's bits and pieces of us that are put into these armies, and then we put them out there. Yep. And you feel like if you get a criticism on that, it's a it's a criticism on you of yourself. Yeah. And I feel like I just want to encourage anybody who's listening that that hasn't shared their stuff to take take a gamble, share it in one of these groups that you might be in that's positive. You know. Yeah. Spend some time in the group first, and you'll kind of see that hey, everything seems to be positive. Throw your stuff out there. Um, yeah. Ask questions. Yeah. If if you you know, you're you're trying to accomplish something and you don't know quite how to do it and you admire someone else in the group, their painting or technique or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. ask, ask them questions about it. Like, you know, I'm I'm not I'm no expert when it comes to painting, but anytime anybody's asked me questions, um, I've told them how I do it or yeah. what I would think about doing it or I've tried to guide them to a path where they could find their find their answer whether it's through a youtube tutorial or asking questions of another guy in this channel or this group that is better at painting than me i mean it got to a point early on in the Morehammer discord where people would ask questions and then other veterans of the discord would at mention me mm-hmm. so that i'd get the notification Right, so yeah. I could answer the question for the guys, like I was this, somehow this painting expert, and I'm, you know, and I'm not. But uh, but I might have been one of the more vocal, helpful painters, right? That was in the channel. So, um, you know, I, I'll offer up my experience and my my advice, if you could call it that, um, and then you can take it or leave it. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's so much value in. Not, not even what you have to say about like a response to a question, but the fact that you're engaging with the question at all and that you're doing it in a positive and constructive manner is so reinforcing for people like myself and like you who are naturally insular and interest, introverted. Um, it, it takes effort and it takes courage to step out of your shell and choose to interact with people um, in a setting, even even just on social media, um, but in a in a setting where there's a, an established forum with people who've established rapports with each other. Mm-hmm. If you come into the Grimdark Tales Discord, which is totally free, um, you if you scroll back and look at what people have said, if you just say hello, I think you'll see that it is an incredibly positive place to be and i i encourage only positive reinforcement and and i feel like i haven't even had to do work it's just that like you know positivity breeds positivity and and the the similar kinds of people are coming into the forum and and into our community that we're building and they all seem to have the same outlook of, you know, to put out that same kind of positivity that, that they would like to receive. And, and this group, I think there's basically only been almost exclusively been positive interaction between people in this group. And I also try to be as present as possible. So even if, you know, everyone's busy in the, in the discord, I try to be there. I try to at least show you that, you know, you're not alone. Your question or your comment has been seen and 
someone is listening and and I'll try to respond as best as I can. Um, I really want it to be a place that is, you know, bristling with activity. And, mm-hmm. and what's been amazing is that, like, as we've gotten more people in the group, um, I haven't had to be there for conversations right. to take place. And that's and like a, eventually that's what will end up happening uh, yeah. once you get enough enough people that are at least willing to do those constant interactions because that's kind of what's happened with the Morehammer Discord. Um, right. It is one that you have to pay on Patreon to be involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think it's as low as $2 a month, so it's yeah. not a high bar. But there's a couple things going. Is is one, Morehammer was a narratively focused channel to begin with, so it tends to draw people that aren't just trying to do Smash Hammer. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and it doesn't mean there aren't guys in there that talk competitively. I mean, they even have a couple competitive threads where if that's where you want to try to do like rules lawyering or – which actually – I don't want to play that way, but I do find it fun sometimes to have those rules um, discussions. Like, I think so too. Yeah, it's oh, really look fun. at it this way. Well, technically, if you do, you know, so like I can get like kind of be that guy in a sense. And when you're having a rules discussion, mm-hmm. I don't I don't play that way, um, and I don't want to play against people like that. But <laughs> in fact, when I'm actually playing, I'm probably forgetting about half the rules because for some reason, when you're in it. Um, it's so much harder when you're there's there's more it. going on because you're thinking about the moves you're going to make and and whether that's that you're trying to tactically or you're thinking about um, how would my guys do this if they were right. you know with with the narrative I've got so e- either one of those your your brain's engaged in thinking about what you're going to be doing sometimes you're forgetting all the different rules interactions that can go on whereas when you watch a battle report you can just be like, oh, they got that rule wrong. Nope, you should have done that. Exactly. Oh, you forgot about this or you could have done that stratagem. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then sometimes it can be fun talking about that just in a those types of rules interactions where it's not crystal clear. Like right. how would you interpret this versus that? And that, yeah. that stuff to me is still fun. I like the tactics side of that. I think so um, too. Yeah. So and you I, have lots of that stuff going on in the Morehammer Discord. They're at like a hundred people now. So yeah, it's getting the super. guys that started it don't even really. I mean, they they do interact because part of the reason that you're paying is to have that interaction with them. Mm-hmm. But they don't have to, and the thing functions and it lives and breathes. Exactly. And we're all helping and sharing and instructing each other and just having a good old time. Mm-hmm. It's it's an awesome place. It's it's the it's really the inspiration for why I even you know chose to to start my own was that I had such a positive experience in the Morehammer Discord that I wanted to make sure that my own you know Warhammer channel, despite the fact that the focus was going to be narrative based battle reports, I wanted there to be an outlet for fans of the channel to just talk and have mm-hmm. like a space that they could all get together and talk about stuff. And, um, I also love talking about crunch too. Um, I don't like playing in that regard. Um, I don't like playing as a competitive player, but I really like coming up with sort of like off the cuff, uh, strategies and lists that I don't see other people building for, and, and part of what I, try to do when I make lists in addition to have them tell like the story that I want is I really put effort into like trying to make lists that I've, I haven't seen 
um, elsewhere right. and trying to make that list work as best as I can, given the sort of natural tactical limitations I'm, I'm giving myself for narrative purposes. Um, I think that's super fun. And I think that there's still a lot of tactical, you know, discussion to be had in, within that world of like limiting yourself sort of handicapping your list for the sake of like telling right. a story yeah my brother um, and i used to do that a lot with uh even here recently is is uh, i want to say within a couple of years i i stopped playing it but there was a mobile mobile game i played that was loosely based off of kind of like mashing together collectible card game with mm-hmm. um the multiplayer online battle arena type game. So you right. build like a team of heroes and then like you could level up how many star ratings they had. And, mm-hmm. but the concept was you built this team and then you'd put it in this arena and anybody else on your server could battle your team. And if they beat you, they took you swap spots on the ladder. Right. And it was, um, computer controlled, mm-hmm. um, just automated battles. But, but the whole thing about it was you're building this team of all these different heroes. And my brother and I found it fun and a bit of a challenge to try to build teams using heroes that everybody else said were garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we would figure out what synergies that hero had with other heroes that existed in the game. And so a lot of times people were doing what happens a lot here in Warhammer sometimes when like a new unit rolls out Yep. And they, they unveil the rules and right. people look at it in a vacuum and they go, that is trash or that's OP. <laughs> and then it isn't until you plug it in. Right. And you Contextualize these, it. Right. You put these other units um, side by side mm-hmm. and some armies, people really have a hard time wrapping their brain around it. And it's, it's the, I think it's a lot of the chaos ones really because there's psychic powers yeah, and people know they exist, but they, for some reason, they they forget about those when they're thinking about the rule. Yeah, and it's think, like, okay, this rule looks like it's trash, and it's like, yeah, but if you bring this sorcerer over here and you cast this on him and you cast that on him and you cast this on the enemy, mm-hmm. that that could almost be a broken combo, right? <laughs> you know, because like, um, yeah, <laughs> for some reason, people sort of, it's a given that like if you play maybe Eldar that you'll have that psychic support. But for some reason, there are armies that have psychic option, but you don't, people just don't think of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it's not like a major facet of most armies uh, or like most builds. But thinking of stuff like that is, that's honestly how the meta gets shifted. Mm -hmm. Um, Is when people look at, you know, they look at what's the prevailing sort of build in a in a tournament scene and they go what is no one taking that would really upset that current balance of list right now and it would be like the you know the loyal 32 with the castellan knight and smash captains uh sort of achilles heel um and and then they would find that thing and they would absolutely rock a tournament and then the meta would shift because everyone go oh right. i didn't yeah, know everybody that knows the weakness now yeah yeah right that, that that's what would happen in this game that my brother and i played we'd we'd figure out sometimes we'd figure out this combo and it's like yeah oh. you know and then the game company it's one of those pay to win mm-hmm. free game freemiums or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah um 
where it's free, but you can pay for heroes. So there, there's always free heroes and then paid heroes, and the paid heroes are always more powerful than the, or they have better abilities and stuff. Right. But there, there sometimes you'd have a hero that had been in the game for a while and he really wasn't that useful, and then they'd release <laughs> a new hero and like the two of them together could wreck face and. Right. Then it, you know, that that particular list would dominate <laughs> until the next month, and they released a counter hero to one of those. Right. Um, so, but yeah, that's just that's just fun, and I it's mean, super fun. A recent example, I think, of that where people were not really thinking about it was those new obliterators, like the redo yeah. on, the, on the sheet. They they see the points and they go, "What the heck?" Yeah. They're like, "Yeah, they're they're getting a little bit more shots, but what's going on here?" And it's like, right. "Well, but compound that with." you know, say Marcos Slanesh yep. and Endless Cacophony. And then, you know, so that, that slight bump is actually way bigger with those. And then with right. the way they reworked the Dark Apostle now, which everybody mm-hmm. feels a bit about, but it actually makes them, I think, a cooler unit now. Oh, dude, I love the new Dark and Apostle it's, it, rules. And it fits with the narrative for those guys even better. Exactly. It's so cool because, like, obviously the Dark Apostles, they're not just getting that one boon from the Chaos Gods all the time. They're they're generally preaching to them about all kinds of stuff. And, right. And, you know. Now there's, there's this really cool game mechanic that, like, reflects that better than just, you know. Exactly. He's essentially like a, what are those, like, uh, chaplains or whatever? He's, yeah, he's not just a chaplain, basically. Yeah, he's not just Chaos version of chaplain. And yeah. that's one thing that I, I kind of hope. Games Workshop does a little more with the narrative. Um, I know that Chaos, Space Marines, and Marines were always kind of already a little bit different mm-hmm. in some of their weapon option loadouts and, and things, but I kind of hope with the Primaris shift yeah. that they're kind of tending to make Space Marines one way and make Chaos Space Marines not just be like the evil counters so that exactly. it's like a set of chess. You know, yep. where they have all the same equal things like they might have units that historically were the same because right. that, you know, like the Dark Apostles might have been the chaplains at one time, 10,000 years ago. When they were ago. loyal, but now that they've been in the warp and they've, right. they've been influenced and motivated by, you know, their whatever gods they're serving or, you know, the influences and stuff, they've, they fill a different role now. Exactly. You know, it's got a slightly different game mechanic. And I, I think like that, that, that kind of stuff. I, I like yeah. the, the, you know, the, not that it's like this, but the rock, paper, scissors kind of idea where rather than everything being this direct counter, mm-hmm. there's kind of like a rotation of counters. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's much more interesting. I mean, it it adds so much com- complexity, I think, to the the way that the game works. And you can't just when you can't just hard counter a unit like that. That makes the game much more interesting. And I completely agree. Chaos Space Marines for I think a while, in in a lot of ways, they did just feel like a reskin of Space Marines of Loyalist Space Marines, and. Wow. I think we're getting to a point where that's changing and we're finally seeing that the chaos space Marines are their own faction with all its own flavor. And, 
the space Marines are evolving as well. And, you know, some people are sort of watching that kicking and screaming because the Primaris thing, but I'm not opposed to change. I, I, I don't just, you know, I'm not a yes man. I'm yeah, a sick of fan. Yeah. But I'm, I don't, I don't really agree with the way games workshop did it, but the, you know, they've been doing business longer than me. Um, yeah. And I'm, um, I'm, I just, I don't know. It just seems weird because like, they come out with these cool new models and that's awesome. Yeah. But it feels like, you know, maybe they're, maybe this is just because of the feedback they got from the primaris, like it, you know, it's, uh, they make them these separate units and, but, right. Oh, don't worry. We're not getting rid of these guys, but we're keeping these guys. And then now they're upscaling the chaos Marines, but right. they're keeping the same stat lines. And it's like, well, why couldn't you have just like changed the rules mm-hmm. for regular Marines come out with new models for them? Yeah. People that have these vast armies that they've already collected don't necessarily have to go buy new models. Now they're right. going to if they've been in this hobby, they're going to because the models are just gorgeous. Yep, they're they're so good. And and, and you know, it, as it is, I think that the in, introduction of the Primaris line was very jarring. It felt like it came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It it definitely sort of threatens obsolescence of people's existing space marine armies and that's like super scary for people who are devoted to that you know i play death watch and i think death watch are still one of the last space marine armies that really rely on non-primaris stuff um as far as like functionality and them bringing something useful to the table and that partially comes from the fact that their rules are designed that way but it also um, sort of speaks to the fact that the Death Watch Veterans uh, kit is like one of the most recent um, and up-to-date Space Marine kits, and it has a lot more diversity in it than, you know, like a classic tactical squad or something. So, right. um, I, you know, I, I almost feel like the rules even then still are coming from a perspective of like selling models. And I, I don't know, <laughs> right. I don't know what Games Workshop's like actual you know, mindset is about it, but I, I will just say that, um, I think that it's really, it's a, it's a scary time, I think, to be like a traditional Space Marine loyalist player. And I hope that Games Workshop really handles this with, with a lot of poise and tact and is very respectful of like how much time and money people have already put into Mm -hmm. these armies and respects that. Um, I'm, I'm positive. I'm maintaining optimism because I've been so floored by how awesome games workshop has handled eighth edition, like in general so far. Um, but you know, the feeling is tentative of like, please don't, suddenly delete half of my collection just because yeah i don't i don't think they will i mean even if the now they've they've said that um the primaris are not replacing yeah mini marines but they're obviously at least for right now they're not doing any more new mini marines right right um and i don't think that they would ever get rid of the rules for them just because there's they've been around for so so long but they I would, yeah there's some theories on some some of the forums i've looked at which uh like daka daka always has like tons of salt so you got to be careful but <laughs> yeah there are some people on there that think that the way they would go 
um, if anything, is just give them legacy rules or they'll make them obsolete from a rule standpoint. Mm-hmm. So they're not coming out and squatting your Marines, but <laughs> they're definitely encouraging you to start a new army with right. all Primaris. Um, and, and it's just narratively speaking, I just don't like the way they did it. Cause it's like, you know, like we talked about call, how absurd yeah. that was. And then it's like, the other thing too, is it's like, here's Marines version 2.0. And then some of the chapters that had like, you know, negative genetic traits, like the blood angels and, uh, you know, space wool. Right. The genetic was, flaws. I don't know that it was a negative flaw with the Canis Helix, but still they've got these genetic differences besides yeah. just being, Oh, we decided to have a separate book. Right. You know, there, there's somewhat of a story behind it. And then the Primaris come out and, Oh, look, we don't have any flaws at all. And it, now it doesn't mean that they can't write that in later, but the way that it's come out is like, you know, uh, call figured it out. Right. He figured out feels, how to perfect it. And it's just like, get out of here with that. Right. Like, it, that's it, so stupid. It feels like, he, in a sense, the Primaris sort of generation is negating the personality of of a lot of these chapters and legions. Um, and that that I think is what's that's what feels like it's, it's sort of offensive to mm-hmm. well, and people. then Calgar. You know, right. now now he's gone the the route of the primar- primaris. Right. So now and if people, anyone <laughs> now people are really like worried that they're going to be getting rid of mini marines because it's like oh named characters are starting to become primaries. Exactly. Yeah. And if if anyone was going to do it, you know, you would assume it's going to be the ultramarines that would take oh, like course. the first Natural. step. Yeah, yeah but um, I I'm not even like a a hater of the ultramarines in general, but you knew it was going to be them. Um, mm if anyone was well i mean okay th- this is the way i look at it like personally i don't really care for ultramarines mm-hmm. i think that they're bland and boring but i kind of think that of space marines in general anyway right. that's that's the kind of the i now i still probably want to collect a space marines mm-hmm. army and this whole what is games workshop doing with them yeah. definitely has me on hold until we figure out which way they're going right but um no matter who the poster boy chapter would have been Mm -hmm. they would have had this hate yes no matter what it could have been any of the chapters that exist now yeah any of pick salamanders let's say they had picked them as the poster boys Mm -hmm. there would be a ton of people who would collect them because they're the poster boys yep um and i i don't want to be like putting those people down but you Mm -hmm. know there's for me, I feel like you got to have more imagination than that. Yeah, and but and I get it. People see that it looks cool. Right. Ooh, what is this? You know, I mean, even with my with my Admech, yeah, I painted them up as Mars originally, and now I've kind of drifted away from that. And I feel for me, they look better not being in Martian colors. Right. Being my own thing. But I did the same thing. I was I was captivated by the box art and what they what Games Workshop had done with those models and the color schemes. Right. And I wanted to copy that. So so I get that. But I I also know just from all the other things I've been involved in, a lot of times the poster boy gets a lot of flack. Yeah. And sometimes it's not fair because they're just simply you you have to pick a character to be your main character or you know, a faction to be your main faction. Right. It's just the nature of 
of the way these worlds are built and it's it's not exclusive to warhammer it's it's pretty much in everything uh that they kind of do that so i'm not mad at them either I, I would never collect ultramarines but i i don't hate on them for just the fact that they are so popular because you know people it's just the nature of the way that they were marketed and i think right. that it's that's fine and well if, i mean it's it's smart too from the company's standpoint because mm -hmm. i mean little things that you may not even understand when you first get in the hobby uh when it mm -hmm. comes to painting certain colors blue is blue and red are like really easy to paint colors like yeah they do really good coverage in just a few coats and yep. so like being new to the hobby like and if you're looking if you're going to be copying what you see initially to build those skills up or because not that you don't have an imagination but you haven't developed it yet right for what you want to do you're just like well what do i do oh well the guy on the box looks cool let me copy that <laughs> yeah you know and then it's it's something that anybody could do that's starting out it's not like they picked white scars you know, they picked imperial fists or, <laughs> or white scars fists, you know yeah. and then you start painting with these colors and go oh. yeah it's it's <laughs> horrifyingly hard to get a nice even coat of those colors for sure um and uh yeah i think it's i think it you know so many things could could play into why they made that choice but the long and short of it is Ultramarines are sort of the mascot for Space Marines. Space Marines are sort of the mascot for 40K. And it's been that way for a long time. And people will continue playing them for various reasons. Some some of them because it's probably the easiest. It's the first thing they see and, and therefore they just go with it. And then some people really like the background and lore of the ultramarines and, and some to them people I, just love the color blue yeah and some people like just love prom. the color blue like prom over more um, but one, one thing i've seen from a because there's actually and it's funny because like i don't know any ultramarine players in my local area now i don't get a chance to get to the store all the time but i don't know of any of the guys that collect space marines that collect ultramarines there's a couple imperial fists Mm -hmm. There's a couple dark angels, but in the, um, you know, you always hear about why ultramarines, why ultramarines. And then people were told like, well, they're one of the most popular factions. Well, in the Morehammer discord, there's a ton of ultramarine players. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of people in there and there's a big slice of them. Several of them, their big draw are the Roman empire kind of tie-ins with yeah. the way their, their armor you know, I mean, I, I know now the custodies probably have a better uh, aesthetic look that mirrors it exactly with the golden armor and everything. But mm -hmm. the ultramarines do have a lot of those same types of visual tie-ins. Yeah, and for sure. So some of these some of these guys are into archaeology or yep. um, you know architecture stuff or history, and so that's what draws them as the Roman Empire and ultramarines have those things and. That's that's what gets them going about it. Yeah, they definitely do, and it's in their name, their name stylings too. You know, mm -hmm. there's their their naming uh, conventions are basically 
drawn from from like Roman Latin as well. Right. So there's a well, lot. Roman almost looks like he could be Caesar or something. You know? Oh yeah, for sure. That you know the yeah. the it seems like the Ultramarines were sort of the progenitors of the whole um, laurel wreath on the head thing. Right. Um, even though you see it on the Emperor now and everything, I feel like from a design standpoint, when they were first designing Space Marines back in the 80s, I feel like the Ultramarines were where that first showed up kind of um, and was seen, you know, prevalently. And that clearly that look came from that that place in human history as well. So, mm-hmm. um, but all this is to say that, you know, whatever you're, whatever has drawn you to the game, narratively speaking, and whatever your interpretation of the narrative is and what that means to you, it's valid because the hobby is what you make it. And there are very likely going to be people you find out there that complement the way that you interpret the game and that make it even more embellished and exciting for you. So what you should, I I say, try to do is find those people that sort of help you um, find your own identity in the game and sort of cheerlead you on to the place you want to be in the game. And with the advent of social media being where it is and the advent of these Discord channels like Morehammer and um, the Grimdark Tales one and Winters, there are so many out there now. Um, you can find like-minded people easier than ever before. And they don't have to be local people. They can still inspire you to participate in this hobby the way that you want and to have the hobby have, you know, to carve out your own little pocket of this hobby that is exactly what you want it to be. And um, I, I certainly have had that experience where, you know, I didn't know personally... I don't know people locally too much that have the exact same outlook on the hobby as I do, but in finding others who agree with me online, I felt more empowered um, in into doing the things that I wanted to do with the hobby instead of trying to conform maybe to what others wanted it to be because I couldn't justify um, what I wanted it to be for, for myself, knowing that there are others out there. It's a reinforcement. Uh, it's a feeling of reinforcement, especially for someone who is introverted and it's not as easy to interact with other people. And maybe it's a little scary to project your, your own thoughts and feelings to a larger group. Um, these places, because they're so positive and reinforcing, can really get you to a place where it's more comfortable to do that. And it's, and it's, it's just a positive experience. So I really encourage you to seek out groups like that. If you feel like you're wanting to interact with more people, um, of a like mind and to find more people who are embracing the aspects of the hobby that you enjoy most. And if you guys have any sort of branching or shared opinions about what the narrative means to you. Maybe it's different to you and uh, we didn't touch on how it is different and you'd like to share that. Please uh, reach out, go into the discord, talk about it in, I would love to hear from you and I'd love to talk to you and have 
um, a really in-depth interaction about those things if you want to. Um, I love talking about this stuff clearly forever and ever and ever. Um, so um, I just wanted to, you know, to, to, in summation, say that there's never been a better time to be a part of this hobby. And there's never been, I think, an easier time to find what aspects of it are most satisfying for yourself and to embrace those fully and to find other people who will help you um, along the path that you would like to take. Um, and people like Jesse and myself are always going to be here to um, talk to you and help you through if there are any challenges you're having or any questions you have about where you should go next or anything like that. That's what I love to be here for. So, um, do you have any, uh, sorry, closing words, Jesse? Didn't mean to shut us all down right now. Oh, no. Um, no, I think, uh, everything you're saying is spot on. Um, I mean, we've, we've talked about it a few times on the two podcasts we've done now mm -hmm. and we've talked about it a ton just, and it's a, it's a recurring theme that you'll see coming up not just by us, but by others in, in the Warhammer community is the, is that the game is really, you're going to get the most out of it. The hobby when you find people that resonate with the same thing mm -hmm. as you and you can feed and drive off of each other. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's just the big, the biggest thing, biggest hurdle yeah. probably is to find that. And uh, just going back to the whole thing, being introverted and all that, the the challenge there is then if you're not someone who's naturally reaching out and having conversations, you need to push yourself to do that. Right. And um, just like painting edge highlights, the more you do it, the easier it gets. Yeah, absolutely. It That's certainly the case for me. And I think that you'll find that story recurring and that we all sort of share that feeling. Those of us who struggle reaching out in general have really found a strength of, uh, you know, camaraderie and community that has allowed us to embrace not only who we are, but to, to come out a little bit more of our shells and interact with one another and have that be a really positive uh, and freeing experience that allows the hobby to just you know, be cultivated even more as a positive thing in our, in our hearts as we're going along. But, uh, yeah, so this has been a massive podcast episode. Um, yes, it's epic. We're, we're <laughs> reaching for that, for that 24 hour. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get there. Um, <laughs> one, one podcast episode at a time. We'll just add a, an hour and a half maybe to each episode until finally, um, it goes for the full di diurnal cycle. Right, right. It's uh, a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me again, Jesse. This has been mm -hmm. super thanks fun. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for sharing very personal aspects of this hobby and what it means for you. I, I think that's really valuable for people who are coming into it and for who maybe um, it means a lot for them as well, but they haven't maybe had the, the courage to express that about, you know, their own experiences yet. So, right. Well, um, you, you might even find that this helps you do that. It can be sort of therapeutic in a way, like, I don't know. Yeah. At least it was for me. Yeah. Um, 
and and I'm really I re- appreciate the hobby a lot for its ability to have that effect on people. Um, and despite the fact that I haven't gone through exactly the same circumstances as you, or maybe you guys at home too listening, um, I feel like it still had cathartic and therapeutic uses for me as well. And I think it can for anyone really who finds joy and comfort in, um, in this particular hobby that we all love. So, uh, thank you again, everyone so much for tuning in. Uh, my voice is truly running out of, uh, fuel here, but, uh, I, uh, endlessly appreciate you all tuning in and, uh, I hope that we will talk again real soon. Thanks everyone. Bye.